Hello listeners and welcome back to our season finale on happiness. Today we are going to discuss on the rise of unhappiness in the world we live in. Gallup CEO Jim Clifton had recently published a book called Blind Spot: The Global Rise of Unhappiness and How Leaders Miss. Let me roll back in time. From Gallup in season 1, we had hosted Mohammad Yunus, their chief editor, to discuss on the josh of public and employees during the pandemic and we had discussed on the tapering of indian happiness which had been occurring even before the pandemic and 2019 election this has also been mentioned in his book since jin has been busy with his book launch he has deputed christian archer and rohit kar to discuss on the issues of unhappiness in the world and the workplace in 2022 we have hosted several personalities on our podcast who have talked about happiness from different perspectives that they have defined written and spoken about with gallup the exercise is very regimented and scientific and based on their data from their global world polls hence we need to take the book and their poll serious gallup ceo has the book and their various initiatives set up a target of impacting 1 billion lives we have also discussed on various issues relating to the employee wellness well-being happiness and also in season 2 we had hosted rajiv peshwaria to discuss on the great resignation today we will also touch upon the great firing in our podcast to move the story and issues forward the team from gallup has been set up to discuss all these issues both at a macro as well as a micro perspective on unhappiness and what's going around in the world today let me briefly walk you through their profile which is very impressive and will help us decode the global and indian perspective to various issues on happiness or the flip side unhappiness on the podcast i have rohit who is regional director with gallup he has 19 plus years working with various clients across middle east and asia pacific rohit supports his client through strategic consulting organization performance culture transformation and customer centric rohit has sector experience across banking healthcare public sector amongst others and he has led several large transformational projects across asia pacific and is a speaker representing gallup in conferences and events rohit started his career with gallup in india where he spent 4 years before moving to manage the business in thailand for 4 years and then heading their consulting group in middle east for nearly 4 years he is based out of australia since 2019 and is currently managing the business for australia new zealand and india rohit holds a degree in engineering from university of mumbai and an mba in marketing and finance from institute of management technology gaziabad his strengths are relator restorative futuristic analytical and significant christian is the senior communications consultant of gallup specializing in big data analytics of employees customers students and citizens christian mission is to help 7 billion citizens be heard on their most pressing work and life issues through the gallup world poll a 100 year initiative spanning 160 countries and regions christian works on gallup leading indices and studies connecting policy makers and journalists with data that describes how people live their life he has led the communication strategy for large global studies on the holologic global women health index unicef changing childhood project and the international labor organizations hiv discrimination in the workplace study in addition to his global work christian leads communication for gallup's national releases and has partnered with organizations such as amazon carnegie corporation of the new york and the 2u a member of the gallup's news team he is a 
regular contact with the national and international journalists pitching Gallup's research findings and implications. Christian covers Gallup healthcare, well-being, economy, and world poll media relationships and has placed findings in New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, and many more. Christian trends are command, competition, activator, achiever, arranger. We will talk about what these trends are and how Gallup would like to impact 1 billion lives and leaders globally deploying its strengths framework in a podcast as well. So welcome to Quote Unquote with KK, Christian and Rohit. It's pleasure having you here on the podcast today. So let's just dive deep into the book that Gallup has written and can you outline briefly the key concepts in the book? How do you define unhappiness and why is it at an all-time high. Of course, KK, and thanks so much for uh, having Rohit and I with you today. So Gallup's new uh, book, Blind Spot, written by our CEO, John Clifton, really looks at, as you mentioned, one of the most concerning trends that's happening today, and really that's around how people feel. So just to give you some broad context, every year Gallup interviews people in over 140 different countries to ask them essentially how their lives are going. And by this, I mean we go door-to-door, calling on people to understand how they're doing. And while we're doing this, we've actually seen, unfortunately, a lot of sadness. You know, currently, stress, sadness, physical pain and anger are on the rise and, and really have been now for some time. And, you know, the reason why we, we wrote this book is, you know, it's been missed by global leaders everywhere. And there's a sense of frustration. There's a real presence of, of frustration that we're seeing no matter where you live, whether you're in the United States, whether you're in India, whether you're in Europe. But the challenge we're seeing is many people are relating this frustration and this sadness to basically be a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And while that definitely is a factor, you know, this trend of increased negative emotions really goes beyond that and has been going on per Gallup's research for over a decade. So, you know, this book is really written for leaders around the world, whether in business or in politics, to really encourage them to understand how their constituents feel. Potentially today, we're too focused on whether or not people have jobs, how much money they make. And we're really not asking them, do you feel happy? Uh, do you feel sadness? And really, our hope as Gallup is that metrics like well-being really become a more important part of the conversation for world leaders to help it kind of pair with more traditional economic indicators so that, you know, when hard decisions are being made that impact people's lives, thoughts like well-being and happiness can be taken into account. We understand that this has been a trend that has been in the making and COVID may have just accelerated it. The question that in your book is, how do we solve it? There's no prescription about how do we go about from where we are to where we should probably go in the world, both at a country level and then at an organizational level. And I'm going to come on that with Rohit very quickly because there's a lot of things that are happening at an organizational level as well. So first at a macro level, there's no prescription per se in your book. It's great. A lot of data a lot of things that we never knew about. In fact, our season, this 2022 season is all about happiness and we have got several key thought leaders from different fears of tacking or dressing happiness, right from spirituality to corporate to human or health-based well-being and happiness. So how do you think there is a turnaround now from where we are at the, at the peak of our 
and happiness in this world. Yeah, sure. From a macro sense, you know, I think I really drive into this point that leaders need to leverage this data to help make decisions that can help move the needle around happiness, around positive emotions. You know, and pairing that with those traditionally economic indicators, which they may have not beforehand. I mean, imagine KK, you, myself, and Rohit, we're we're sitting in the room with G20 leaders around us, the president of the United States, the Prime Minister of India, the Chancellor of Germany, right? And we ask them, you know, what indicators are they following most closely? We're gonna hear economic indicators, is an inflate is a is a recession coming? How's inflation looking? What's unemployment looking like in my country? What's unemployment looking like in my region? We're gonna hear all of those things. I would bet you, however, they are not going to say, I'm looking at how happy my people are. You know, I think maybe they might be looking at whether or not their people agree with how well they're doing their job. But is that really affecting the day-to-day lives of you know everyday citizens in India, in the United States, in Australia? I think getting this more personalized data is going to really help these leaders create better decisions, right? Gallup isn't in the business of creating policy. Our job as one of the world's largest public opinion research companies is to really help people understand the problem so that they can come to those solutions that they were elected to create. Excellent. Let me switch over to Rohit. According to the workplace study pre-pandemic, during pandemic, highest level of engagement, employee engagement, then you have the great resignation and now you have the great firing. Is this something also the corporate leaders have missed it somewhere? It's not something that they have missed now. It's something that I feel has been kind of put as a second priority, a a lower priority, unfortunately, across board over time. I think for for us to look at the short-term indicators, now even now when we talk about it, we're talking about what's going to happen, like Christian said, in recession, what's going to happen on things that, that are making impact economically or in business. But looking beyond that short term and going into the realm of what is creating that is, is very, very important. Again, if we focus on those short term things, it will lead to short term as simple as that. Correct. I want to pick up a few more points with you, Rohit, briefly, but let me just now come from a global perspective to India, macro first. And let me just set that context for Christian. You know, in a season one during 2020, we had your chief editor, Mohammed, come and talk to us. And he said that India's engagement or the people and happiness is at its peak. And then we had the elections and Prime Minister Modi got re-elected. And I guess that's also briefly written about in the book as well. Can you explain me this phenomena where the people are unhappy but they still elect a leader to give some continuity in the politics. How do you explain this phenomena which you have written in the book? But now again, we have the elections in another one and a half years time and the same Prime Minister Modi is come back with a big majority in his state Gujarat from India. So how do you explain unhappiness correlation to political outcomes of elections? Sure. And, you know, it's it's really hard to kind of correlate the two, right? We're going to need to do a lot more deeper research on on the subject and on for us to create a correlation. You know, in, in social survey research, the word correlation is a very tricky thing to define. So we at Gallup are always very careful when we say something is correlated. And to that point as well, I also want to just really clarify what we were looking at in terms of the elections of Prime Minister Modi, as well as what we were looking at in the book, which the light, which was the life evaluation of people in India. So I think, you know, that's a really important point, which 
definitely, I think, gets muddled occasionally, which is, and we, we do this all the time, right, where we say, what's the happiest country in the world? And a lot of it is actually predicated from this one fantastic report called the World Happiness Report, which uses a lot of great Gallup data in order to actually understand what, who they believe to be the most happy, happy people in the report. And they do that by using that life evaluation scale we were talking about, right? But really, when you think about life evaluation, which is asking someone from a scale of zero to 10, how is their life go? You know, zero, not so great, 10, it's the best it could possibly be. We're not really asking about how happy you are. We're asking something more like subjective well-being, which is a general assessment of how your life is going. So I think, you know, happiness, I think, is used in a way because it's cleaner. It's something that is more easily understood by the general population than if I was to say, you know, who is the most generally well-being-esque uh, country in the world. It's it's a lot more of a mouth. So, you know, when we're looking at a country like India, we're really asking about that more subjective well-being piece of things. You know, that being said, I think what we what we really saw in terms of India and life evaluation wasn't necessarily like major changes with Modi. Obviously, we did see growths in thriving evaluations when Modi was elected in 2014, and obviously when he was re-elected again in 2019. But I think the unique piece that we saw was really the kind of differences and the fluctuations of life evaluation in India versus the fairly linear and strong GDP growth that India has been experiencing. So I think the, the important piece here is really to go back to my earlier point to, to say it's important for, you know, Modi's re-election campaign for other elected officials in India and countries around the world to understand that, you know, as we as we saw, we did see some some peaks in 2014 and 2019 in terms of life evaluation. And it's important to see those within the context of those other traditional economic indicators when you are making decisions around how to run a campaign, for example, or how to gather. I want to make a statement and please correct me whether I'm right or wrong as per your life evaluation. Start at an individual, then it it kind of aggregates to a family, then the community, and then from the community to the country. Is that correct? So when we are asking these questions, it's it's very, very similar. Yes, we, we really ask it, we call it the Gallup macroeconomic path, and it is loosely based off Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So really, we start at the very, very basic, where you need food and shelter and you need law and order. And then we really kind of rise up that path all the way to, as you said, more country level findings, like are there good jobs in the area? Is this country accepting of who I am? Am I, am I thinking about going elsewhere? Is there a brain gain or a brain drain? So really that's the way the Gallup macroeconomic path is created in order to understand kind of all of these aspects that make up a good life, all the way to that, like you said, the kind of higher echelons. Ruit and Christian, I wanted to get your perspective. How is the job market actually shifting? We have a big debate in India on moonlighting. There was this whole great resignation and now mass firing, not just with the big techs in the US, but also in India because of various reasons of lack of growth funding in the startup. How do you see this shift in the way an individual is seeing himself as a way to earn livelihood and be engaged and be happy. Well, I, I can I can turn on to that. I think when you look at a point like that, there are two sides to it. There is an organization and leader side, and there's an employee and team side, right? From an organization and leader side, I think leaders are doing what they need to do to 
impact and manage the impact of external environment. As simple as that. If you talk about layoffs or you talk about trade resignation. But at the local level, you will be governed by a lot of things that are happening and that you're experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. I think part of what we need to be able to understand is when we are trying to minimize the impact of external in environment onto our people, leaders have a very significant role to play in. Managers at every level have a significant role to play in. How do we make sure that as employees, the experience is not just transactional, but more overarching in terms of how their life is? And when people see this, if you see greater organizations, even in our database, we have organizations that do exceptionally well during difficult times, exceptionally well, even when they have to let people go. It is about how you value people, how you, what kind of culture you are promoting, and how does that balance out with what the organization, the business, and uh, the external environment point in time. Christian, you have to add something at a macro level. Is there something that you're seeing with the economies and people are not able to wonder what, what's leading to all this happening now? You know, I think, I think Rohit has stated that really, really well. And, and covered most of our, our main points. You know, I will say though, just thinking about the current environment, we are seeing, and we actually did a really wonderful research project with our partners, Amazon Web Services, which was looking at people around the world, actually gaining interest in getting further digital skills, digital accreditations. From what we can really see is they are trying to essentially ramp up the skills that they have in order to be prepared for a more technological job market, but then also are open to more kind of IT-based opportunities as well. So I would definitely recommend taking a look at that report for anyone that is interested in it. Hey, I see a lot of similarities with Gallup's vision and uh, you mentioned about the G20 as well. I heard somewhere your chairman and your CEO uh, mentioned that you want to impact 1 billion lives as an organization and India has just taken a leadership position in the G20. Next year, India is going to be the most populous country in the world, over a billion and a half people. And I'd like to understand how are you going about setting this whole agenda for a billion people as an organization of, I guess, what, 40,000, 50,000 people internally no, at I, Gallup? I think we're a little bit, we're a little bit smaller than that, but we are. No, I, I mean, um, all your data collectors <laughs> in the field also who are part of oh, the Gallup organization. And in that case, I think, I think we're probably getting a bit closer to that number. Yeah. But, you know, this, this really speaks to a quote that I hold near and dear to me from actually Gallup's founder, George Gallup, who, and Bear in mind, there are a lot less people in the world when he uh, actually said this quote, but he said to everyone, there are 5 billion ways to lead a life and we should study them all. Yeah. And I yeah. think combining that with our current leadership's motto and plan to ensure that people are living their best lives, it's really important that we are helping as we said, leaders, organizations make decisions that impact people's lives in a positive way. And that can happen in such a large range of, of manners. For example, we work with fantastic organizations around the world. We work with company, healthcare companies like Hologic to understand how women's health around the world is doing. Are women able to get 
the kind of medical care that they need, the kind of preventative care they need to live long, happy and healthy lives. We worked with the Food and Agriculture Organization in the United Nations to understand how people are food secure, food insecure, and where there are potential hotspots that need to be identified to help people get the nourishment they need. You know, these are just a few of the, the research projects that we work on. And I think, you know, the important data to find is really in those dark spots around the world. I think KKU, myself and Rohit, we're very blessed to live in countries where they have very robust polling and sampling methodologies where government organizations, health agencies are able to get a good picture and understanding of how the country's doing and what it needs to do to progress further. That may not be the case in some countries. And a lot of Gallup's work allows us to shine a light on some of those parts where people may be struggling in one way or another. And we can kind of help under help people, help organizations understand what is needed to be done. And then the next part is it allows a a comparison, right? We can look apples to apples and how people answer in India versus how they answer in the United States and be able to learn from each other. So I think it also is potentially a communication bridge where we can say, okay, well, you know, people in India feel like they have very high financial inclusion versus countries in Africa. How can we take lessons learned from this? How can we leverage kind of our international brotherhood to, to help rise all boats? And I think that is one of the ways that we're hoping to impact billion lives. Well, you manage India and the region. I'm sure you understand India much better. What's your take on how do we work together and collaborate with Gallup and ensuring that we can touch or contribute to your target of 1 billion lives from India? 100%. I think we've been in Gallup for decades now. Gallup has been in India for decades now. And we've already done that with so many organizations. You know, We have successfully transformed so many organizations to help them, number one, and going back to the earlier question to Christian, is that a one important way where Gallup prides itself for being able to actually influence or impact more than a billion lives is to be able to put forward right information in front of you. I think that's what we do, but that's what I have been doing with Gallup at Gallup for the last 15 years. How can we bring forward right information in front of leaders, whether it is in terms of metrics, whether it is in terms of their customers, whether it is in terms of how people feel. And that's the first step. Getting the right information is almost the base requirement for any transfer. That's where we are. And I think the second thing is ownership. Now, ownership is a, ownership and accountability is such an important thing. And you specifically asking me in context of India, I feel uh, India is almost like a divided story every in almost every aspect of it, whether it is financially or otherwise. It's also like that you have the best practices of the world in India. And then you still have, you go to other companies which do not have, right? Sometimes because of lack of awareness, sometimes because of focus on short-term thinking. The idea is to be able to hold our leaders account. Well said, Rohit. I wanted to bring in another point which was mentioned is the law and order situation. And, you know, things have been deteriorating globally on law and order and obviously one of the big political debate in India was how come India is ranked lower than Sri Lanka and Pakistan in the law and order index and we had one of uh, a very reputed police commissioner Dr. Kiran Bedi also come on our podcast show and talk about 
the same issue. I would love to understand from Gaulab, how did India get 80 points and Pakistan and Sri Lanka get higher points? And yet we do understand there is a lot of corruption in our law and order system. We have a few ministers who have gone to the jail for corruption, a few police commissioners who have gone to jail. But I believe that there is a lot more happening in Pakistan and Sri Lanka who were ranked higher in your law and order index. I think, you know, it's important to note that many countries' law and order scores did decline. And, you know, we we, we did actually see, for example, an 8% drop in Americans' confidence in the police since 2020. So I think there are a lot of emotions around policing right now, especially in places like the United States, um, especially in you know, democracies where they're able to have these conversations around policing and issues like that. And I think it's tough to necessarily give an explicit reason why one country like India is is lower in the rankings than places like Sri Lanka or Pakistan, as you mentioned, because it is very subjective of that person's opinion. And so it's, it's hard for us to, as we kind of spoke about with correlations earlier, it's hard for us to make a assumption on those words. And I would, I would add very, very importantly, it is not a comp. You know, I would strongly say that we, we report the way we report because that's the best way to report. It is to put as much information as we can in the best possible way for leaders of each countries to or organizations to do the best they can. There is no way you could kind of neck to neck compare or compete in, in those areas. We have to get better within ourselves. Ideally. I wanted to get your sense in the time that uh, you have tracked this information about unhappiness. There is also a choice of the people of those countries to choose extreme rightist or religious fundamentalists to lead their country. What are those indicators in your research that you had warned the leaders of the world or is this post facto coming out from the unhappiness results that people selected such fundamentalists and you know rightists as their leaders and then that led to decline or unhappiness in those countries i think one thing that we should mention here is you know while a decline in national mood may not necessarily predict a leadership change, it can create the conditions for a leadership change. You know, sometimes the conditions are right, but a trigger event needs to, to kind of take place. And sometimes even if the conditions are right and there is a decline in mood, it doesn't necessarily predict political change. I wouldn't say that our data is able to really describe why there is a potential shifts to more severe policy one way or another. But I think really going back to my earlier points, you know, th there is a frustration around the world, whether that be in that kind of negative emotions piece that we were talking about, that creates these conditions where people start demanding change. And I think when those conditions happen, that is when we start to see some of these points, some of some of these policies potentially being enacted and, and elected into office. You know, I go back to what, what we, sp we spoke about earlier in the G20. Do we really think that all of these major leaders around the world are thinking about happiness versus just looking at those traditional economic indicators? You know, I, again, I encourage them to look at happiness, look at positive emotions of their constituents in order to make decisions that will move that needle and kind of create more stable conditions potentially. 
Now you just mentioned about G20. We just had our first plenary session in Bombay earlier this week on the G20s as India has taken over the leadership of the G20 for this year. And obviously there is a announcement that India wants to take the voice of the unheard onto the bigger platform of the G20 as well. What sort of agenda or policies or areas that India would love to focus. Obviously, there is already a preamble about what India would love to do in the year coming here on the G20. But are there areas that you would love to recommend to the G20 leaders what they need to focus in 2023? I think what is really, really important is uh, it goes back to what, what has been said so far is, is thinking about the leading indicator. I think well-being as a concept, once understanding how do we as a country as a nation or as as globally defined have a metric around well-being and hold leaders accountable for that and make that as a primary metric how do we focus on defining what does well-being mean for india how can we be the leaders of that concept of that initiator globally and why not right not not just across g20 but globally i think the other thing we also see in our data is this when you look at rise of unhappiness there's more within south asia there's more unhappiness among women than among men and again I think this is slight difference, but I think worth noting because I think there's more we can do with and for women in the region, in the country, across G20. How do we encourage them? How, how do we build skills? How do we encourage their leadership capability and so on and so forth? And the third one I feel, which I think is in some extent kind of part of it is also our ESG move, right? So how do we focus on right governance? How do we focus on right social metrics and environmental metrics that can create a more sustainable world for us? You know, now on the political side, there's an Indian who is on the top 10 list of global leaders, which is our Prime Minister Modi. But Rohit, I wanted to ask you a quick question. If you take the Fortune 100 companies in the world, there are about 15 or 20 Indians or from Indian diaspora who are at the top of these organizations. Do you think these organizations have corrected uh, or elected the right leader to head it because of their cultural or their understanding? I know they've worked very hard to reach where they have reached, but are they at the right place at the right time to lead an organization where they are today? And why are they sacking and firing people? And why is there so much of unhappiness as well? I'm bringing it more from an Indian context because you understand more Indian leaders in the corporate side as well. I, I wish we had a one to one understand whether it's a right decision or a wrong decision, usually very hard to see. I, I think here's, here's a big shift in our mindset that we need to make global. It's not any particular country, it's not any particular person, is that we need to move beyond, especially in, in leadership, there's generally a dearth of leadership globally, right? If you look at how many leaders do, real leaders and high quality leaders do we need globally and how many there are right now. I think we need to be a bit more focused on how do we create a pipeline of exceptional leaders for future. That's number one. I think the second thing is beyond just the diversity of our ethnicity, I think we need to start thinking about cognitive diversity. And we kind of talk about it a lot. No matter where you're from, no matter what experience you've had, like our founder, George Gallup said, five billion ways. It's not five, one billion Indian way or two billion other ways, but it's five billion ways. And everybody, every single person has a unique story. How can we 
be able to get to a place where we can, first of all, understand and appreciate cognitive diversity and use that information to build a pipeline of leaders. How do we do it now? I think India is suffering from diversity in political leadership as well. We don't have a strong opposition to a strong leader. So I'm sure we are suffering from that leadership pipeline as well. What do you recommend? How do we build this? I'm suffering with so many of our investing companies where the founders have taken it to a certain level, but it's beyond them to now take it to the next level or you need to really coach and mentor them to take the organization to the next level. And that's where, you know, external talent and leadership, as you said, is very scarce to come by. And we suffer from a huge growth paradox with an existing leadership that we have groomed in our organizations and our corporate world. It's a very grassroots thing, I, I believe personally. It's a very, very grassroots thing. It's a very cultural thing. I mean, again, I'm, I'm bringing a bit more Indian context here. You'll understand is oh, as we are raised as small kids, what we are taught in school, what is told to us is right or wrong. What is told to us is important, not important. Those things contribute significantly in what kind of creates leadership pipeline for us. I think uh, I wouldn't say that it is one person's job. Like well-being is not one person's job. It's a collective conscience or conscious that needs to kind of evolve. I think leadership pipeline, not just in India, but everywhere, the collective conscious needs to evolve in a way to say that this is a grassroots level initiative. Every individual, every family has to start thinking differently about what future needs in the world. It's not the way we typically say in Indian, Indian context. When we look at a report card, what do we focus on? Do we focus on uh, where we scored the lowest marks or do we focus on the things that we excelled in? And you know the answer, right? So I think that mindset shift needs to happen at a very, very grassroots. So I wanted to talk a little bit on our geopolitics as well. You have talked about that there is a lot of diversity, but one thing that I noticed that the leaders in our corporate sector that need to be groomed sometimes lack empathy, are not good listeners, need to coach and collaborate. This is something that I keep seeing time and again with many of our leaders and investing companies where we are struggling to groom such potential leaders of the future. How do we go about it? Is there a way Gallup can really collaborate with the industry and work with organizations in creating this whole pipeline of leaders? 100% and we're doing that with so many organizations in India, in South Asia, globally as well, is we know two very important things, right? Number one, that the best chance for anybody to get better at any is by focusing on them and their strengths, what they're naturally good at, right? And then understanding what those strengths are and then getting better and becoming a better version of themselves, right? That's the first and foremost. I think Gallup role has been incredible. We recently reached about 30 million people who have gone through their strengths assessment. And that's one way to create self-awareness, one really robust tool to create self. That's one part. The second part of it is it goes back to the earlier point I was saying is what are we measuring and holding them accountable for? That's another very, very important work. We speak, I speak to the executives, leaders, CEOs on a very, very regular basis. They keep saying the same thing, you know, as to we are expanding into these markets. We have to kind of almost step into the bottom of the barrel right now to find leaders who can really run run with the idea. There's no dearth of ideas. There's no dearth of innovation, really. What there is, is a need for us to think more systemically, think more long-term. And please understand, as much as it is talent, it is also skill. You need to be able to invest 
in that skill building. You wouldn't hire somebody as a doctor who doesn't have a doctor's. How do you agree to put somebody in a manager's role who doesn't have the necessary skill set or the necessary education or exposure to self-awareness and tools to be able to do that? What we bring is those tools, those educations, those ability to create accountability and ownership to drive that capability. Ruth, you mentioned about strengths and I see on both your profiles, there are certain four words which I believe describes your strength. And I took up a strength assessment with somebody I believe who is an ex-Gallup person, Marcus Buckingham. And in my area, it was told as influencer and teacher and pioneer. So I do not know how to map that between your strengths and all. Could you help us describe how you measure those strengths and how do you then take it forward in grooming the leaders of the future? That's a good question. Look, I think without specifically kind of comparing us to any specific, I know it's the the one that you are referring to. I think the the difference, there's a subtle difference there on one side, but there's enough difference on the back end of the research. But Clifton Strengths typically reports more enduring traits right? While some others are role-based, right? Which are more transitionary in the right. So I think that's why they're describing you in a more role-specific way, a teacher or, you know, some things like that. What we do is, this is again, like I said, beyond comparison, we the, the research that has gone behind it, the experience we have rolling this out is that we try to understand the enduring traits of employees or people generally, right? What are the natural patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving of people, no matter what context, whether it is personal, life, professional life, or any other life that you have. I think that makes it a lot more universally applicable, either a management solution, leadership solution, team solution, all of those. The other thing which is significantly puts us apart is that there's a lot of consultation around, right? It is not just a tool. Tool is the beginning of the conversation. We have a goal this year is to create about 22,000 coaches in 2022. We have 22,000 coaches globally who speak the language of strengths who are coaching millions of other people every day. So what kind of consultation we provide either through Gallup internal coaches or Gallup certified coaches? What kind of consultation do we provide in terms of understanding leadership expectations, the research that we have there, and how does it anchor back to culture? You know, so I think the way Gallup approaches it is quite holistically. We don't operate in a silo of consulting. We actually consult across a horizontal cross-section across. So what are you doing today that is creating a sustainable environment and how is that impacting your outcomes, whether it is customers, whether it is external or internal stakeholders that you have. So that's how we approach it. Thank you for explaining us your template. And it's very exciting that, you know, these methodologies could be used in actually improving the workplace and mitigating the great resignation and at least ensuring that there is engagement. For sure. We, we've done research where we have seen simple, like even if you do a basic strength assessment, it improves your outcomes by about 7%. And if you do a lot of consultation around it, it can impact things like attrition significant. So when you talk about great resignation, quite quitting, and those kinds of things, strengths in our engagement framework have very strong correlations, proven correlations on some of those out very well. Christian, I wanted to take on from India to our Indian geopolitics and our neighbors, because India can't be happy with the type of neighbor 
numbers that India has, and I'm sure your results of their happiness levels could be defined by what's happening in our neighborhood as well. Could you bring up from your data what's happening in our neighboring India, right from Pakistan to Afghanistan to China to Vietnam to Bangladesh to Nepal, Bhutan, all these smaller countries. And then we have countries, the Indian Ocean, which obviously Sri Lanka and Seychelles on this side and on the other side. How is the data from your global studies showing what's happening in our, in our neighboring India? Yeah, so I think here it's really important important to see that not every country is alike. And I think in that range of countries you mentioned, there are some that are definitely, per our result, faring better than others. And I think some, we are definitely seeing some significant struggle. You know, take, for example, Afghanistan. It's been a very tumultuous year with Afghanistan, and there's been a lot of change with Taliban rule being re-implemented. And Gallup is really kind of seeing some significant changes with the Afghan population. You know, we're thinking, we were thinking and talking about life evaluation earlier uh, when we were talking about the re-election of Prime Minister Modi. You know, and we were talking about how people are thriving in their lives. And kind of the flip side of that is people suffering. And what we found in Afghanistan right now is currently 98% of the population is considered to be suffering. So thinking about that, that zero to 10 scale, they're really kind of giving extremely low results there. And over a quarter see their life today as kind of the worst it's it, it could possibly be with, you know, nearly one in four then expecting their life in five years will be even worse. So, you know, I think, I think it's important, especially in the context of Afghanistan, is to see that there is a lot of negativity with the population. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. And their belief is it's going to be going on for a lot while longer. So as we think about India and its neighbors, you know, we've been talking about it's important for leaders to really understand kind of their own constituencies and how they're faring. But I think for someone like Prime Minister Modi, it's equally important to understand how populations in China, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan and Sri Lanka are doing, because it really helps them understand the context of what those citizens of those countries are feeling when then relating to other leaders in the region. So I think that's kind of the most important thing that we're seeing is, you know, while suffering and, and negative emotions are around, we're definitely seeing places like Afghanistan are really struggling. There is a trend in some of our neighboring countries, a lot of companies actually exiting out because of the current economic situation and the law and order there, which means that those companies or those organizations which are exiting are also leaving a big hole on employment and a spiraling down of unhappiness because your own earning capacity and your own uh, ability to sustain your family actually gets eroded as well. What are you seeing at micro level? How is employment and employment indicators working out in our neighboring India? Look, I have a very, very different angle to this. I, you talked about strengths earlier. I'm high futuristic. I always keep peeking into the horizon and seeing and I'm high positivity as well. So I, I look for the brightest possible future. And if we were to look at the ideal future, all of us are far away. So yes, there might be a slight bit of difference in one metric versus the other metric, a few percentage point here and there, and we being better at some things, others being better at other things. But I think collectively, we have to go very far. And the only way possible is to look at it, you know, as a region and say, what can we do individually? And what can we do collectively to actually 
actually stop thinking here and raise our bar significantly overall and say this all is kind of in a way a very minute changes that we we sometimes see here and there but we need big changes really across i agree with you and this is where it's a little bit crazy when we read or hear reports of what's happening across other countries and we tend to have these political debates in our parliament that india has done better than you know the other countries and you know we have got so much of investment coming in and we have got so much of more employment getting generated sometimes we feel that some of this is all an investor or a di driven initiatives and it could always evaporate moment there is a economic meltdown in any country so there's a huge risk that the country and the employers and the employees face because of these reasons do you agree to it well, i think again it's it's very situational if you look at it because investment if you look at conceptually will will whether it's in a company or a country will or is of the nature where it will keep coming in and going out so that you cannot change the nature of investment like that but what you make out of it and how you deal with that is something that changes from country to country significant i wanted to bring up one statistic which is something which i caught up in your book it says that on an average in a lifetime a person works for 81396 hours i'm sure rohit you'll agree with that in the indian context it could be over 100000 hours in his life. lifetime and i'm sure given the total number of hours in the life of a person this is over 60 or percent of hours living life hours of a person which he spends at work engaging as an employee or engaging in some sort of an economic activity as a self employed person and yet see that they are unhappy at work and can you share your perspective as to given that such high time is been spent on work and an economic activity how do we need to now change or redefine work itself uh, where there's a lot of things we hear called future of work employment how do you think that work itself has to change well work itself is changing so if you look at state of the future workplace reports that we have kind of researched millennials it has one of been one of the most comprehensive research that has happened in the newer genera- generation entering workforce is that their expectation of work and work organizations is completely different and it's not a generational thing also it's not like when my dad was 28 or 30 he expected something different than what he expects today but these are the things that we are capturing that are here to live longer right and in that research we found out that people have moved past the basics right like for example obviously salary is important it's it's something that is very very kind of hygiene in nature but purpose has become even more important work yes all this kind of satisfies you know have a ping pong table and having lunches and dinners at offices is important that helps in the short term it helps somebody's lives as well but having a development culture is extremely extremely critical going and moving from a boss mentality to a coach mentality is something nobody wants a boss anymore in the future of workplace they want coaches you know and things like i was always just before the call i was with a colleague who was talking about someone he spoke to who were just so discontented after their performance conversation they just finished their performance conversation end of the year and they were extremely disheartened and discontented like how do we think about not focusing on fixing 
people's weaknesses, but focusing on what they are good at. How can we help them make them better versions of themselves? So in if we really want to change that, if we really want to change that, there are a few things we need to kind of reinvest in. We need to reinvest and believe in that organization's purpose has a big role to play, how we attract and retain talent and make them feel happy about it. And I think the other thing that, that is important is there, has, there can be no replacement of a meaningful conversation, whether it is with your manager, whether it is with your leader, whether it is with your peers, but how are we creating that culture that enables that meaningful conversation? And the other thing that has kind of shown us anecdotally and through research that is the biggest driver sometimes of these, these disconnects is the development conversation and the growth conversation. People are not globally, this is a problem. Managers are not sophisticated enough. They don't have the knowledge and skill enough as much as we would hope for to actually have these conversations in a way that will improve the experience and the meaning of life for the people as well. So these are the things that we need to change. And more importantly, and I've been saying this again and again, I feel throughout this uh, last hour is the accountability. You can put the best frameworks that you want, but unless and until there is a systemic accountability around it, it's not going to change. Well put, Rohit. I want to just shift on a couple of points to close some of the points pending with Christian. And then I want to come back at a micro picture to close with you, Rohit, as well. Christian, in one of our podcasts, we had done some research and we discussed that some of the countries have actually even created a ministry of happiness. All right. And obviously, the people who were behind that were also on our podcast and they had a certain view of what the, those ministry of happiness in those countries meant or their role to be. I wanted to know, does creating a ministry of happiness really change scores in your game or it is again what those speakers talk to us on our podcast that it is just a customer service ministry which just is hearing the growls of the people but not able to, not empowered enough to act or beyond what they have been chartered to do. Yeah, I can't comment on exactly what every individual ministry of happiness is doing, but I can comment on what the creation of a ministry of happiness says. And okay. what that says is that says that, or, that, that countries and leadership are really starting to take a note of how their people are feeling and you know whether or not it is a whitewashing of happiness or not i hope it's not i hope that this is something where they are trying to really create strong metrics which then have serious implications on people's lives and significant and powerful implications on people's lives i think that seeing world leaders taking this action the uae bhutan i know my own home country of the United Kingdom is doing a lot of research and well-being as well. I think it's important that we're seeing this because one thing that Gallup is very cognizant of is that well-being is extremely important, but the original creation of well-being was a Western-centric construct. So I think it's really important for countries around the world to create their own institutes of well-being, their own institutes of happiness, and understand what it means to be happy in their country, right? I think it's great that we're able to create global overarching metrics that are able to compare people, but I don't believe that we can say 
a life well lived in Europe is the same necessarily as a life well lived in Asia. And even in thinking about India and its neighboring countries, is a life well lived in India the same as one in Pakistan or Sri Lanka? So I think it's really important for, for countries to create their own ministries, to do their own research, to get further understanding in order to drive this further sense of happiness, increased well-being, and allow people to really live their lives to the just a funny jibe here from my side. You know, you work with CHROs and companies most of the time, correct? Yes, I So do. why not call the CHRO as Chief Happiness and Resourcing Officers? Well, if it was up to me. Uh, but look, I think uh, it's, it's... Just human, like the right? Ministry of Happiness in the <laughs> countries. I think like Christian said, I think it's... Charity begins in the co company, correct? No, absolutely. But I think the, the, the discourse is on both sides. It's at the political level, the government level, as well as the corporate level. No matter what we call them, no matter what we uh, kind of expect of them, the need does not change. The expectations of employees does not change. And what does not change most definitely is the influence and impact it has on the outcomes of an organization, outcomes of a country every single day. How do you think the HR needs to elevate now more from an operations to more as an engaging engagement and a much bigger role in creating coaching and collaboration in companies? I think we are very lucky to be working with so many organizations where, where that's already the case. I think where HR uh, is a strategic kind of leader, part of the board, part, sitting on the table, has a huge influence in how they kind of drive the business outcomes. You know, again, it goes back to leadership, right? So it is important that we have the right leaders at that level. And also for executives and CEOs to think about what do they expect of their HR leaders, right? I think also I've seen many cases, especially in India, where there has been one company, they have created some really unique and meaningful shift in the way they operate. And there have been others who have kind of been able to replicate that. Even if we're able to find our successes within our country or in anywhere in the world, World actually as to where is it working well and then find our own unique way to do similar things not just copy paste but do similar things in our own unique ways and style i think that's going to be a big way india is going to actually emerge much stronger in the hr field i want to bring the issue of investors at a country level we have the imf which gives money to the fragile countries for them to recover and in organizations you have the vc and the private equity who want results at whatever cost of employees being unhappy and IMF wants certain economic indicators at the cost of higher taxation or uh, we have a big daddy called investor and IMF at a country level private equity and venture capitalists at an organizational level who's always breathing down to get results at the cost of employees being unhappy or citizens being unhappy just to turn around the situation and return back whatever the goals objectives financially to their masters and their investors how do we now address this elephant in the room to ensure that we are able to balance investor and the citizen or the employees on the other hand and keep that balance of happiness? Yeah, I think it is, it is inevitable that it will come one day. But I think the, the mindset needs to shift from your loss is my win to where is a place where we both can. And again, we're not just saying out of our sheer love for this topic. We know that this is based on research and our indicators at a local level, global level, is that only when your employees are sustainably engaged, you think about what is important for businesses is to have a sustainable, a customer who comes 
comes back again and again and wants to purchase, doesn't look at the competitors and understands and connects with your organization well. That is not going to happen when your employees are not ready to give them that experience on a day-to-day basis and provide products and services that don't engage them. And that is not going to happen till we do not look at a sustainable way of looking at how employees can be brought to that level of uh, sustainable engagement, uh, sustainable performance. There is a win-win. There is a quadrant where both the IMFs of the world, the investors of the world, and the employees can win. And we have shown that in so many of our organizations. Your take, our neighboring country is not getting money from IMF and they are almost going to go bankrupt. And citizens are now, you know, walking all the way till Istanbul and then catching a ship to take some political asylum somewhere else. Very, very concerning situation because the political establishment there doesn't want to listen to IMF how to turn around the country and there's a deadlock. Yeah, I think it's a tough situation in all of these pieces and obviously they are difficult challenges that leaders need to to kind of bring up. But I, I did also want to kind of jump in on Rohit's piece that he was mentioning and one of our heads of research science actually had kind of some great points in regards to as you were talking about this interaction between investors and and basically getting that performance that you need. And, you know, I think a lot of times we are very much kind of stuck in this quote unquote command and control style of leadership where you get, you know, okay, no more Mr. Nice Guy for the boss. And we're actually finding that, you know, only two in 10 employees actually strongly agreed that their performance was managed in a way that motivated them to do outstanding work. Right. And, you know, the goal of any organization, if you want to, to outperform and, and hit the metrics of investors, is really to ensure that your teams are firing on all cylinders. So I think, you know, to Rohit's point and, and to points around ensuring that we're able to hit those goals, whether it be the IMF or whether it be private equity funds, is having a really frank conversation about how we're managing our teams and our organizations in order to make sure we're getting the most out of them, whether that comes to goal set or in terms of interventions and creating feedback loops that are actually effective. You know, we did a meta-analysis spanning 90 years of research, and we found that more than one-third of these feedback interventions actually result in worse performance. So if you're thinking about this from that kind of global perspective or from that perspective, say, KK, you're my boss, you get some bad news from the investor, and then you want to to bring that news to me and the team. I think that there needs to be, and and going back to the coaching moments that Rohit was talking about earlier, there needs to be ways that we can create a language to communicate that me as as the employee has a true understanding of what I need to do and what I can do best in order to allow us to get to that point. So I think, you know, it's really, really important that these kind of structures are set up at the country level, at the company level, so that you really don't lose the trust of your best people and that you're allowing them to kind of do the best work that they can. That's a great take from your side as well. And I guess, gentlemen, we are approaching our last 10 minutes. So I would love to do a two questions.
question rapid fire with both of you. But uh, building trust is something, it's a bigger topic for us to talk about. And I'm sure we will do another podcast on this in our next season, if time permits and both of you are available at the same time. But trust at the country level, custard at the organization, at the family, and building trust at the individual level itself is a big topic for us to talk about. But let me just do a time capsule. If you, uh, Gallup has been collecting this data for last 10 years, if you were to put a reset 10 years back, what would you have done to change the destiny 10 years later when this whole book has come out? If we were to, so I want to get your question correct. If we were as Gallup able to create an intervention correct. that Ten years would back. kind of strike this, I, I will tell you right now, I think it would be to stand on the tallest mountain in the world with the loudest megaphone and really ensure that leaders were understanding how their citizens will live. I think that, you know, if we think 10 years back, everything was focused on GDP. Everything was focused on unemployment. Millennials were the new hot thing, and we were really kind of thinking about the shifts in workforce. And now I think we look at millennials today, and we see that a lot of them are feeling overworked, tired, and burnt out. And so much of that, I think, can be related to not not looking at kind of their happiness, not looking at how they feel. So I think really kind of impressing on people as much as we possibly can, that understanding how people feel is not soft, it's not junk science, it is truly, truly important and has massive effects from the workplace all the way to one's health. And I think being able to really impress that and get leaders to look at that in a holistic way, I think we could have solved a lot of our problems and could have definitely helped a lot of people uh, in the decade that's passed. Ruth, what's your take? I think uh, probably we should have done this podcast 10 years ago, I guess. <laughs> that would have had. Look, I think I feel this. this 10 years this ago, more... there was no podcast industry. There was only YouTube <laughs> industry. <laughs> There we go. Uh, no, what, what, I, what I'm trying to say is that I think it's the awareness of it is very, very important. If we are able to kind of go back to what are we changing today? Let's let's not talk about a time cap. Let's talk about if today is there something that we can do to drastically arrest. So you in the beginning, you said that we are the peak of unhappiness. We don't know we are the peak of unhappiness. This could go anyway, right? So my point is, what can we do today really to change the narrative, to change the expectation of leaders, the government, and the leaders? in the organization and the leaders the team level to tell them to change the way they are thinking to think about that win-win and be able to build capability across board to do that. Show them how it is done. Show them the examples. It has been done. So how do we show them the examples of how it and try to replicate? And by the way, very importantly, any change, any change for that matter time, especially when you're talking about a change of the nature of global scale, you also have to be as citizens, as employees, be patient about that change happening, seeing that small little shifts and experiencing and kind of throwing shining light on them is very, very critical and the process. Christian, you got an opportunity to be on the peak of Himalaya with the loudest of the loudest loudspeaker possible. What's your message going to be to in the current scenario now to our politicians, our corporate leaders, our lenders of last resort, which is the IMF and all these policymaking bodies and to the citizen and people of the world? It really is listen to the voices of those people, whether it is around 
around happiness, whether it is around core issues that this world will be facing, whether it be the changing workplace for business leaders, understanding how current and future generations want to work and how they can effectively work, whether it is massive global questions like climate change, understanding how people feel about climate change, understanding how they want to have an impact and understand how climate change is impacting them in order to create strategy. Understand social issues, to understand how people want to live their lives and how they can build better communities. I think getting this local voice, getting this personal voice and being able to bring it to the highest chambers of government is really going to help us create more holistic societies, more happy societies all around the world in the individual ways that they need to be created. Gentlemen, your CEO and we have had a very lovely relationship when he came to India and, and he met me and I've been in touch with him. I'm very impressed with the type of work and the leadership and the type of thought leadership that you have got on the table and you have echoed on it. From my side, I would love to ask you, is there anything I can do collaborating with Gallup? Yes, I have tried to do the Hunger Index in India and, and several other initiatives which never took off the Wellness Index. But is there something that I could help contribute to that initiative and causes that Gallup is invested in our country? I cannot promise outside the country, but <laughs> anything that you think in my personal capacity and in my organizational capacity that I could definitely help you reach that 1 billion mark of people you want to impact. I have a challenge for you. Sure. So, you know, uh, I was talking to somebody recently and they were like, the strength is such an such an awesome tool and I've experienced it, I've experienced it by team and so on and so forth. But I haven't tried to get my general managers and there are 40 of them to understand it and to see how good it can be and how can it be transformational and everything. And how can I, how can you help me? She asked me, how can you help me, you know, kind of make them believe that it's a great tool. I was like, first of all, we cannot convince 40 people of a tool. It's not possible. What you need to do is find one champion, just one champion, and just transform them. My challenge for you, KK, is you you have a vast influence, connect with leaders, like you said in the beginning of the podcast. I want you to pick one leader who believes in this and make a case study that can resonate with the larger uh, diaspora of industry. And I think you would have done big, big influence and impact in the way we are trying to do locally and globally. Challenge accepted, Rohit. I need to talk to you offline. You know, I've done some other strength by mistake, not the Clifton strength. I went to some other website and took 10. But I'm more than happy to collaborate at, at our industry association level wherever I'm representing and also at our investor for us. Happy to do that in taking this message across. Mm -hmm. And if India can be, India is about 18% of the world's population. Assuming yeah. we're 1.5 billion and 9 billion hitting next year, then I'm sure we would have a fair share of what we need to do in, in creating the pipeline to that 1 billion. I, I'm telling you the way India works is that if you create one success story, one success story, if you put us in front of the industry leaders where we talk about the impact of that story. This is going to be something that is going to be beyond just one organization. It's going to be a movement. 
that's what we need we need to move absolutely more than happy to do that challenge accepted <laughs> gentlemen thank you so much for your time it was difficult getting the clifton because he was very busy with his yeah. book release and then getting you together and engaging conversation we have had this is obviously our finale for this year on happiness and what a better time to have both of you to close this season on not happiness but the global rise of unhappiness thank you so much for your time and we do invite both of you over to india and talk about this on a forum which we can probably organize very soon in the coming year that's okay thank you so much wonderful questions thank you so much great conversation thank you bye bye